Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, all. How is it June already? I have no idea where the time is going anymore. I did have the pleasure of seeing a number of people in the Bay Area startup industry this week over the last several days, which was really nice because out here, as listeners who live locally will know, the weather has been super shitty for most of the year. And these were nice, sunny outdoor gatherings. Yesterday, for example, I co-hosted a small get-together in Marin County, just outside of San Francisco, where I realized for the first time just how many people in Marin are focused on climate change, both as investors and founders. It's not super shocking given that Marin is a pretty progressive place, but I did feel for a few hours at least like a meaningful number of people who've moved out of San Francisco and settled north have this focus in particular in mind, which given how many of our neighbors are wealth managers and lawyers, it's actually a refreshing change. And I'm only half kidding about that, by the way. You cannot swing a dead cat without hitting a wealth manager in this area. It's kind of like the Greeks forming enclaves in Chicago and New York when they first immigrated to the US, or the Irish arriving in Boston. Alex and I used to be surprised by this living for years in San Francisco in a neighborhood where people did all kinds of different jobs. Now we just kind of assume that everyone we meet in the vicinity is a wealth manager until we're told otherwise. And it actually works half the time. Haha. In any case, we have a great interview for you this week with Ian Sigalo, who 17 years ago co-founded the early stage venture firm Graycroft with veteran investor Alan Patrikoff and with longtime VC Dana Settle, who, before launching the firm, began her investing career with the venture firm Mayfield. Patrikoff has since stepped away from Graycroft, and Settle, who is based in LA, and Sigalo, who is based in New York, are running the show now. And evidently, investors like what they are doing because they just closed on $1 billion in capital commitments a few weeks ago, which in this market is really saying something. We'll get to that interview in just a few minutes. But first, a couple of quick news stories. Clearly, eating disorders are a big problem in this country. According to the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders, 9% of the U.S. population will have an eating disorder in their lifetime, and one American dies every 52 minutes from an eating disorder. An organization called the National Eating Disorders Association, NIDA for short, tried to provide advice to people about eating issues, but its helpline was often swamped, requiring long wait times. While the fact that helpline workers were trying to form a union may have also played a factor in its decision, NIDA decided to close its helpline and roll out a chatbot. The nonprofit maintained that it was the most efficient way for it to offer clinically reviewed advice to the scores of people that were flocking to its website. What could go wrong, right? Well, it turns out that NIDA's chatbot, nicknamed Tessa, started giving advice to people with eating disorders about how they could lose weight. As self-described fat activist Sharon Maxwell told reporter Julie Jargon in an article in today's Wall Street Journal, in Maxwell's chat with Tessa, Tessa quickly advised Maxwell to track her calorie intake and conduct daily weigh-ins, and recommended that she aim to lose one to two pounds per week. Contacted by the journal for her opinion, psychologist and eating disorder specialist Alexis Connison said Tessa's advice was, quote, very dangerous for someone with an eating disorder. Also dangerous 
the fact that no one seems to know or want to fess up about how Tessa came up with this advice. In its original incarnation, Tessa was incapable of thinking on its own. It was supposed to use scripted answers. But at some point, it seems, Nita turned the operation of Tess over to a company called CAS that operates mental and behavioral health chatbots. CAS chief executive Michael Rouse acknowledged to the journal that some of its chatbots use generative AI, but would not say whether CAS had added generative AI elements to Tess. Tess could not be reached for comment. For its part, Nita has taken the AI offline. For good, it seems. Last summer, Blackbird, one of Australia's largest venture operations, marked down the value of one of its most prized stakes in the Sydney-based design platform Canva. Valued at $40 billion by investors in a $200 million round in the fall of 2021, Blackbird adjusted its own valuation of the company 36% to $25.6 billion. Now, T. Rowe Price, the mutual fund Goliath that began investing aggressively in late-stage startups nearly a decade ago, continued to fund them throughout the pandemic and led that $40 billion round in 2021, has marked down the value of its stake in Canva even more dramatically, adjusting it by a whopping 67.6%. Asked for a comment earlier today, a spokesperson for Canva downplayed the number, writing in an email, quote, As a profitable company with very healthy cash reserves, we're in a fortunate position to continue focusing on building an enduring company for the long term. Regardless of the macroeconomic environment, we are well positioned to continue doubling down on key initiatives, including growing our team and expanding our product and AI innovation efforts. T. Rowe's investment in Canva represents a minuscule amount of money for the sprawling investment firm. Its blue-chip growth fund had roughly $53 billion in assets under management at the end of the first quarter of this year. Still, it's notable that one of the savviest asset managers in the U.S. thinks a company that was, for a time, the fifth most valuable startup on the planet is currently worth far less, essentially $13 billion and not $40 billion. Asked if Canva has adjusted its own independent 409A valuation to match up with T. Rowe's assessment, T. Rowe's markdown is really just its opinion after all. Canva's spokesperson said its assessment does not match that of T. Rowe, but declined to comment further. Naturally, Canva is far from alone in being emphatically marked down by its backers after soaring to new valuation heights in 2021. Klarna, the Stockholm-based buy-now-pay-later provider, saw an even steeper markdown a year ago, dropping 85% to $6.7 billion from the $45.6 billion valuation that it was assigned in 2021. Klarna, which proactively accepted its reduced valuation, has since tightened its lending standards and slashed costs, including through repeated layoffs, and says it is now, quote, firmly on track to reach monthly profitability in the second half of the year. Like so many other outfits right now, both companies are actively being transformed by and looking to take advantage of general artificial intelligence. In a press release late last week, Klarna credited some of its current momentum to OpenAI, saying an integration with its large language model is accelerating Klarna's evolution into a digital financial assistant. 
In an effort to maintain its own leading position in the world of graphic design collaboration, Canva has also integrated generative AI across its product suite, telling Fast Company in March that much of what is now infused throughout has been built in-house through long-term investment and acquisition. Its customers appear to like what they see. According to Canva, more than 200 million images have been generated with its text-to-image offering. More than 1 billion words have been written with its AI text generator. And nearly 2 billion backgrounds have been removed with its background remover product. As for AI's impact on Canva's valuation going forward, that remains to be seen. While public shareholders will eventually decide what they think the company is worth, an offering isn't forthcoming. Not yet, anyway. Asked about a possible IPO today, Canva's spokesperson told us that there are no plans in sight. Meanwhile, in March, Canva co-founder and COO Cliff Obrecht suggested to Barron's that it is now very much top of mind for the 11-year-old company. Said Obrecht, it's not the right time to go out right now, but obviously it becomes an inevitability at our size, he told the outlet. It's on the horizon, but not on the imminent horizon. Up next, our interview with Ian Sigalow of Graycroft. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Finley, the debt capital management platform for startups. What if debt, not equity, is the make-or-break factor for your startup? When Finley's CEO, Jeremy Shway, was a debt investor at Goldman Sachs, he saw that smart capital management is the competitive differentiator in fintech and lending. That's why he founded Finley, modern software to help startups manage their borrowing bases, financial covenants, and other debt capital must-haves. Today, finance teams at leading companies like Ramp, TripActions, and ARC rely on Finley to manage over $3 billion in debt capital with private credit lenders like Goldman Sachs and Upper 90. Interested in learning more? As a Strictly VC listener, you can get a free debt capital consultation from Finley's Capital Markets team at finleycms.com slash strictlyvc. That's finleycms.com slash strictlyvc. Ian, it is great to be connecting. I know that we've talked, but it has been too long. So thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Of course, I saw your big news that you had raised two new funds totaling about a billion dollars. That's right. And you also raised about a billion dollars a few years ago. So Ian, the firm did look very different, obviously, when it was founded 16 years ago. But I am sometimes stunned now when I go to Graycroft's page and I see how many people work there. Can you tell us how you and Dana and Alan came together and then how the firm is run today now that it's so much bigger? So 17 years ago, it's incredible Time goes by so fast. 17 years ago, Alan really brought us together. The short history, I've spent my entire career doing one thing, which is venture investing. Right out of college in 2001, spent three years in Boston. And then I went to graduate school at Columbia. And Alan Patrickoff was a trustee at Columbia Business School. So through a bunch of mutual connections, we were introduced 
And I sat down with him for breakfast at the Friars Club in New York City in March of 06. He had met Dana, I think, in January of 06. So that's kind of the short timeline there. And he was still ideating around what Graycroft would be. He had raised, when I met him, $30 million for the first fund. And he felt like he needed, in New York, a junior number two to work with him. And at the time, Dana was actually going to move to New York as well. So it was going to be the three of us in New York. And fast forward, Dana got engaged. She ended up living in Los Angeles and staying in Los Angeles. And then we set off together with Dana in LA. And and I joined Alan in New York. And it was the three of us. The firm was really small for a long time. We were fewer than 10 people up until probably 2013, 2014. And then as happens in venture, you start expanding and growing and your purview grows. And today we're about 60 people and we run a couple different strategies at Graycroft. You know, our original strategy was really seed and early stage venture focused largely on the media industry. And there's a lot of entertainment and media in New York and LA. And now we do way beyond media, fintech and healthcare and enterprise software and on and on. So We've got a a big organization. We're actually registered with the SEC. So there's a lot of compliance and back office and other things that come with that as well. Oh, great. So you're an RIA? That's right. Okay. I didn't realize that. Is that a newer development? Yeah, we formally flipped in January of last year. So it's been about a year and a half. Was there any specific driver? Obviously, a lot of firms went that way because they wanted to do more crypto investing and their mandates didn't allow that previously. Not crypto for us. We have a little bit of crypto in the portfolio, but that's not been one of our main thesis areas. For us, it was flexibility around how we would acquire interest in companies. We had companies that would sell secondaries. And from time to time, we would do an SPV that would be entirely secondary. And you just can't do that when you're not registered as an RIA because you're restricted to 20% non-qualifying securities in any specific instrument. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And also, we're now north of $3 billion of committed capital. So at some point, you're acting like a registered investment advisor without being a registered investment advisor. So we, we felt like if you're paying for the education, you might as well use it. So flipping over and then formally registering allows us to do all of the things that our contemporaries are doing. So you didn't mention this, but in addition to broadening your purview, you also do growth stage investing. So where right. do you, are your growth stage investments are tied exclusively to your earlier portfolio? Or are you also shopping for companies that you maybe missed at the earlier stages? We launched our first growth fund in 2014. And prior to that, we had a vehicle that was more of an opportunity fund that was tethered to our first venture fund from 06. And I think the learnings in the process of launching that first growth fund in 2014 were that you needed to go outside of your core portfolio if you wanted to drive returns. And Our goal has always been to generate great returns for our investors. So we decided that constraining ourselves to just follow-ons was going to be too challenging. and We needed to go look for B and C and D rounds all over. So from the very first fund we launched, we've always had a mandate to do the best companies we can find in the market. And in terms of the SPVs, you're managing $3 billion and that incorporates the SPVs that you're managing or are those in addition to those funds? 
I think the SPVs are in addition to the three billion. Okay. And can I ask in what companies you have SPVs? Sure. So we've done four or five in the history of the firm. The bigger names, Scopely, I think that was our largest SPV exposure. And with Scopely, we actually, you know, just was announced that the company was acquired. It hasn't closed yet, but for 4.9 billion. And I think we had somewhere between 50 and $60 million of SPV exposure to that name. We have an SPV for Fetch Rewards. We had one for the Real Real before they went public. We raised some capital in the last private round for that business. Certus, we've done an SPV for. I think there's been two or three others. So something like six or seven companies in the history of Greycroft. I love the Real Real. I was a little bit worried when Julie left. I mean, obviously it exited, what, in 2021? Did it go public? I think it went public before then, like 2019. That long ago? Okay. Yeah, I think they went out before COVID. Do you still own any shares in the real real or have you exited fully from that investment? I don't know that I'm at liberty to say, but it is in one of our longer dated funds. You know, that investment was over 10 years ago. Okay, great. Anyway, I just always wonder if a PE firm is going to swoop in and buy it or what's going to happen because it's sort of astonishing to think that its market cap is something like 300 million or something shocking to me. I know a lot of people who love that. I think in hindsight, it was a really good idea. And the challenge with the model is just very capital intensive and storage of the garments is expensive and the way that they procure in such a white glove manner is expensive. But when Julie first approached us and pitched us on this idea, I think it was 2011, 2010, eBay at the time was doing about a billion dollars of luxury goods sales in the category. And she thought that she could expand both the supply and the demand side. And she did. She really executed well on that vision. But driving a profitable machine and and taking the cost out, it's just very hard to do in that business because it's all basically one-off unique pieces of fashion product, and they all have to be graded. So, you know, it's a complicated business to scale. Sure. One thing I was thinking is that you've raised a lot of money. You've raised basically two-thirds of your assets under management in the last few years. Looking back now, obviously you put to work a lot of money between 2020 and 2022. In retrospect, do you think that you invested that too quickly? This is a great question. I'd say on the margin, if I could take a do-over 2020 and 2021, we would probably look back and say, you know, half of the capital deployed during that period, we would have been better off waiting on. The flip side is that the other half of the capital deployed during that period, I think we will make a really strong venture return on, you know, time will tell, right? And what we're seeing in the market and what we saw during that window in particular, I was actually thinking about this this morning, we had built very meaningful ownership positions in a couple hundred companies going into kind of the late phase of this asset bubble. There was some enormous statistic that we showed the LPs in 2020, maybe the number was 4 billion or $5 billion of follow-on capital went into Greycroft companies in 2020. And that number grew in 2021. It was like six and a half, seven billion, enormous numbers. Right. When we started Greycroft in 06, the entire US venture capital industry was 30 billion. Mm -hmm. 
and you know, our, our own portfolios were commanding so much capital. And you look at it and you're like, you kind of have to make a determination in every single company, where am I going to protect my ownership and where am I not? And you know, our companies were really heavily capitalized but the whole industry was really heavily capitalized. And the challenge in that market dynamic is that if you don't raise the money and your competitors do, you're really at a strategic disadvantage. So our companies had to go get capital. And for our part, because we were the largest shareholder in many of these companies, we had to invest something. I think on the margin, we deployed 250, 300 million a year in 2020 and 2021, which is a small sum relative to the $10 billion our companies raised during that period, but was still a large sum for us. I'm very happy sitting here in 2023 that our businesses have the balance sheet they have. If I had to deploy the capital again to make sure that the businesses could be funded the way they're funded, I would play it exactly the same way. But the downside of it is that not every dollar deployed during that window is going to generate a 10x or or greater return. Ian, I read in an article in Reuters, you said, there are a lot of big asset owners and managers who are trying to understand how to allocate in a high inflation, high interest rate environment. And I think that growth at a discount is where venture is heading as you're finding high growth businesses that are repricing back to levels that we haven't seen for years Can you comment a little bit about the implication of that repricing on ownership stakes? For example, where you used to look to get, say, 20% of a deal, are you now looking for 25, 30%? And how has that repricing affected your current portfolio? So I'll take the prospective view first. Venture at the moment is a tale of two cities. The capital is flowing into the highest growth best quality companies that I've seen. And we're still meeting with businesses that are going zero to hundred million of revenue in a couple of years. And those businesses can command steep valuations and a lot of mind share and a lot of funding. It's almost as if the party didn't stop for those companies in 2022. And then you've got a second set of businesses that are growing slower, are not likely to be marquee assets, for a handful of reasons, or just have something to prove before they can break out. And I think the challenge today is sorting through that list and understanding what has to change, what market unlock has to happen for that second set of companies to explode with growth. And if you do, you'll see the valuation and the multiple improve. And if you don't, there just isn't capital for them. As we've looked across our portfolio, many of our businesses we've been guiding to get to cash flow positive because the market's tougher and we just don't have certainty on where they're going to price in six to 12 months. Luckily, a lot of our biggest positions have been able to get there. And then on the other ones, it's really milestone driven. If you can get to 10 of ARR on 20 of paid in capital and the unit economics look like this and your roadmap matches where the world's going, we think that you're going to be able to raise a great follow-on round. But if you can't do those things, it's going to be very hard. And I think by and large, because the market for venture assets is not efficient and it has never been efficient there are really, really good bargains to be had for venture capitalists who understand an industry really well, can dig in deep and understand the difference between the A-plus assets in a category and perhaps the B-plus assets 
And they'll say, you know, this company really could be an A plus company if these couple of things break their way. And I understand the risk I'm taking and I'm going to fund it. And when you're right, you'll make a terrific return. And I think there's a lot of money that is starting to look through that group of companies because that's truly where most of the venture back businesses sit today. Ian, I'm just wondering as an RIA, there's obviously a lot of great value to be had with publicly traded companies that are depressed and obviously there's your liquid. Is that something that you're doing more of as well or not necessarily? I'm just wondering how your LPs feel about that. So we have the ability to invest in public equities. We've spent time looking at quite a few names that have sold off in the public market. We have yet to make either a pipe or a standard open market purchase of a public equity yet. Of course, we own public securities because we've taken companies public and we continue to manage those. But I actually think it's an interesting area to look. It's an area that's open to everybody who listens to this podcast. I mean, you can go be a venture capitalist today in the public market if you can find an undervalued business that's got good growth prospects. Because the companies with a market cap below a billion or two billion, they just don't trade very well. There's not a lot of institutional coverage. Their market cap is, generally speaking, too small for the fidelities of the world to take an interest in. And if you get into one of those businesses early, you can make 10 times your money. And in fact, I think 10 years from now, people will look back and say, wow, there was a 50x investment to be made if somebody looked at these couple names in the public market? On the one hand, there are deals to be had in the venture market and also in the public market companies that are perhaps undervalued. On the other hand, there is this AI revolution that's taking shape. And Dana Settle, your partner, has said that your firm is interested in both foundational models in AI as well as applications that are being enabled by AI. I guess my question is, the valuations of these AI deals can't be cheap. How do you look at valuing a foundational model in AI, for example? How do you look at valuing companies in the AI space? Well, cheap is relative, I suppose. Some of them are relatively well-priced, and some of them are very expensive from a multiple perspective. There are two types of AI businesses There's probably more than two, but I'll simplify the world into two groups. One is companies that use AI tooling like an LLM invented by somebody else to deliver a product. And we have a lot of companies that fit into that category. Businesses that have built some sort of a system of intelligence that previously you needed a PhD to use, and they perhaps even had their own markup language. And then you staple an LLM on top, and now anybody can use that tool. Products like that will expand into many verticals from healthcare to financial services. And there's a couple of these I have in mind that we funded and you know the LLM revolution is really enabling them to go from a universe of selling into data scientists into a universe of selling into anybody. Ian, before you go on, can I, are your startups dependent on OpenAI's LLMs specifically? No, most of them are using OpenAI's LLMs, but they're not dependent because at this point there are open source competitors. They're about the equivalent of ChatGPT 3.5, somewhere between 3 and 3.5 in terms of quality of the response. Uh, So you're getting a 
very slight degradation compared to the best OpenAI LLM. But that degradation, depending upon the use case, may not be noticeable to the end user. So there are substitutes, I guess, for OpenAI, if that's your goal. I'll speak personally in this one. I can't speak for all of the partners, but most of my companies are using OpenAI's LLM because they believe it's somewhere between three and six months ahead of the competition. So results are better. They're also using it because there's a strategic universe of Microsoft and OpenAI partners that are moving through the global economy very quickly. And I think you have to pick the lanes you're going to play in. A lot of my businesses are enterprise software companies. And if you can get bundled with Microsoft's distribution, it is an amazing path to building a big company. And similarly, Google has their distribution and Amazon has their distribution. And I think that this is one of the interesting vectors that this space is going to play out over the next three to five years where you kind of pick upon and big companies, many of them are sole sourcing on Microsoft or Google or Amazon for their cloud. And they will choose vendors that are fully integrated into that suite of applications. That's a digression from Alex's original question, though. We can go back to that. I think the second set, Alex, your question around the pure play LLMs, and I'll put Anthropic into that category, OpenAI, Cohere, a handful of others. You know, those companies are expensive, but the potential of those businesses is really great. We've seen instances of companies that go you know, zero to 100 million of revenue in months. Because once you're live with a market-ready LLM product, there aren't that many businesses that can amass the talent to build this. And people want substitutes for open AI. And if your product has a differentiated set of features, it's better integrated into certain data sets, you choose an ecosystem that's not the open AI Microsoft ecosystem. I think all of that likely means that there will be some sort of oligopoly in the future where there's a couple really big companies that have built LLMs that are ultimately very competitive and take a big part of this emerging market. And you can justify paying a very high valuation if one of the companies you invest in ultimately merges into that category. I thought it was really interesting. Sound Ventures just raised a growth fund, a relatively modest sized one, I think maybe $250 million. And they're only investing in six of these LLM companies. I'm wondering, are you an investor in any of them? Have you gotten a chance to see these deals as they've been in the fundraising process? My partner, Dylan, has done an amazing job in bringing in and getting in front of many of the names you mentioned. We are in a few it's very hard to pick winners right now. I think there's two things to note. One is the market is still early and not fully formed. My belief is that OpenAI is going to emerge as kind of the dominant company. That's not a surprising or novel revelation because they're out first and they've got a huge number of downloads and a lot of interest. And then I guess my second belief is that it's just super hard to build the talent to compete. So you're going to find a few businesses in this category that can do that. And those businesses will command a significant premium. We've looked at a number of these businesses. We've made a couple investments. And so far, I think we're really happy with the bets we've made. 
Can you say which those bets are? I don't know which ones have been published yet. I know that Character AI was published. We did that one in Andreessen. Beyond that, I'm not sure that the others have been announced. Have the players changed much? I mean, obviously, Tiger and SoftBank have receded far into the background. Is anyone else on the rise that you weren't seeing a couple of years ago? How's the competition changed? Well, on one hand, there are so many more venture capital managers today than there were 10 years ago. On the other hand, there still aren't very many that can support a company beyond one or two financing rounds. And I guess this was the last point on the LLM conversation too, because if it's a 50 to $100 million lead check, that's a pretty rarefied set of investors that can write that quantum into a single company without having very material risk in a venture fund. Because the typical venture fund in the US, I don't have actual stats on this, but I'm guessing it's still 50 to $100 million is the median. And the mean is probably 250. So you're into a small rarefied era venture managers who can deploy 50 million in a single company without having more than 10% of their fund in a specific deal. And the best entrepreneurs in the world, generally speaking, they've got really big ambitions. They want to build large public companies. They're going to deficit finance that company for a long period of time because they want to take a whole market. They hire very strong talent. They know that they're in a talent game and they have to pay up to get that talent. And they view access to capital as a weapon. I think the people we find ourselves competing with generally speaking, are similar size to us and can deploy 50 to 100 million in a company, maybe not in a single round, but over multiple rounds. And, you know, that's a universe of VC firms that probably has 20 or 30 names in it. What is the biggest check that Graycroft has written? And also, which startup has attracted the most overall funding from Graycroft? I I know we have over 100 million in Scopely. I believe that was our biggest to date. We have a number of companies that are 50 to 100. We've not done anything over 200 yet, but about $100 million is the top end of the range. That's a lot. And congratulations on Scopely's acquisition. Can I ask how much of the company you owned? Yeah, I think we owned north of 5% of the business. Great. Nice return for you. It will be very good. We were the very first investor in that company before it was doing what it was doing. Dana met Walter and he was building applications for Facebook and it was not a gaming business or game publisher. And we were $250,000, I think, like a seed note. This is the venture business though. You start with $250,000 and you fast forward and you have a hundred million in the company 10 years later and it exits for billions of dollars. Savvy Games acquired the company, and my understanding is they are backed by Saudi Arabia. Do you have any Saudi Arabian investors in your fund? We do not at the moment. I understand this is a potentially politically sensitive touch point. Many of of the larger venture managers that we compete with will have money from Saudi Arabia, from the Middle East in general, but we don't. Do you have a position on that? No, I don't. (laughs) 
<laughs> Alex is a, loves to stir the yester the pot. You know, you also invested in Landing, a company whose CEO Bill Smith we interviewed a while back. For listeners who don't know, Landing is a furnished apartment rental company that offers very flexible living. I think it's such a cool model. I think if I was in my twenties, I would be all over this. I did see that after we had interviewed him, they conducted as so many companies have a couple of rounds of layoffs. Two quick questions. What gives you confidence in this model that it's going to work? And also in terms of companies having to like reset and plan for the future and do layoffs, I've been so surprised to see these companies doing multiple layoffs. And I don't know if there's a way to avoid that if you're advising your companies to just, you know, maybe cut once more deeply. It's got to be difficult for so many founders and obviously their employees to go through this process. Maybe it's helpful to back up a little bit and share with you what has really happened behind the scenes, not just in landing, but in all of these companies that have to conduct layoffs. Basically what happened, and this is true for all technology businesses, multiples collapsed. Public multiples and private multiples, they track each other. And companies went from 20 times revenues to six to seven times revenues for Generally speaking, software businesses or software-defined companies that build proprietary software and are still growing fast. If you're in that situation where you raised capital at a high multiple and your comp is down 70% or 80%, you have to grow and double your revenues for probably three straight years. And every company looked at their P&L and said, look, based upon where the comps are, I don't have to grow 300%, but I have to grow 100% for 36 months. And then I'm back above water again. And how do I do that with the cash I've got? The answer to that math problem was trimming everywhere you can that, that didn't kill growth or kill your product and, and engineering org and doing it fast there's something that I think about as like an area under the curve analysis, where if you cut fast and you cut deep, you don't have to cut later because you save all of the money that you would have otherwise spent through doing this in stages. So the best entrepreneurs got in front of this and they made one deep, fast cut. And they said, now with my plan and my budget, I've got some cushion. If I double this year and double next year and double the year after, I will grow into the new multiple that's being ascribed to companies that look like me. Our portfolio companies that needed to went down that path and did it. And it's difficult being on the board and having to navigate all of these issues. But keep in mind, this started in the first quarter of 22. So mm -hmm. we are today 18 months in. And that means we've got somewhere between six and 18 more months before the best companies come out of that trough and are worth what they were worth before by virtue of the fact of they've grown into the last round. And I think the net result will be the companies are better positioned than they were before. They're leaner. They're just more operating leverage in these businesses. They're better run. I think overall it will be good for venture, but it's certainly painful in the moment. And then I don't know if you want to say anything about Bill. Obviously, you had a lot of success investing in his last company, Shipped, which sold to Target. Yes. So sort of like Dana getting to know Walter at an early stage, this was obviously a longstanding relationship. Just the model. Again, I think it's really fascinating. I guess I don't happen to know 
people who are living this life, but I think it would be amazing to be able to change where you're living every few months and just be part of this membership type of platform. I'm just wondering again, if it's because you trust Bill so much, or you think this is the way people might live in the near term, curious what your thoughts are on this company. First of all, I love Bill. It's not just trust. I think he is a generational entrepreneur. He's not just seeing the future, he's building it. And to watch him operate, he operates at a very high level, complex businesses with a lot of moving parts. It's funny, I've learned from a lot of people in my life, and I was lucky and fortunate to have Alan Patrickoff as a mentor here at Graycroft, but I've learned as much from working with Bill as a board member on his company as I've learned from almost anybody. He's just a great, high quality, high integrity human. But that aside... I think that his view of landing, just to narrow it down to the way I think about the world, is there is an opportunity to build what Airbnb has built in single family rental. And Airbnb does a lot of extended stay in single family. It's a growing part of their business. They also do short stay and vacation rental and everything else. But their product for the consumer differs from a hotel because it's a single family house. And in the case of landing, Bill said, well, there's so much more urban multifamily product. The future of this country is more diverse and more urban. That's where this inevitable trend goes. So if I were to build a competitor to Airbnb, I would find a way to do furnished multifamily. And that's really what landing is. So you go on the site today and you see thousands and thousands of listings across the country of furnished, high-quality, multifamily, extended-stay rental product. And you get very consistent user experience. And if I'm traveling for more than a couple of nights, I would book a landing, particularly if I had to be someplace for a month. Now it's, it's a really good solution for people. And what we're finding is a lot of business travelers whether it is visiting nurses or management consultants or just people who aren't tethered to a specific geography, they're opting in to live this way. And it's a really affordable and great way to experience the country. I guess I'm sort of itinerant at heart, which is why it appeals to me, but are there enough people whose jobs involves visiting different places for extended stays? It's a ridiculously large number of people. And keep in mind that Americans spend a lot of their disposable income on rent. So if your apartment or house costs you a couple thousand dollars a month, that adds up very quickly, right? So you're talking $25,000, $40,000 a year. If you have a million people in your addressable market, which we have a lot more than a million people, the U.S. workforce is huge, right? So there's a million people in just like the nurse consultant, handful of other professions that enable them to live this way. And they're all paying somewhere between 20 and $40,000 a year in rent. That's 20 to $40 billion. These are really big numbers. Super interesting. Well, Ian, listen, thank you so much. I think we kept you longer than we meant to, and I really appreciate your time. And again, congratulations on your new funds and uh, your momentum. And I'd love to talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. 
That's it. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. And special thanks to Finley, the modern debt capital management platform. Please check them out at finleycms.com slash strictlyvc. Have a great weekend, and we look forward to seeing you back here next week.